Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. This is the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. Uh, we're very excited to have you here today, and we're uh, joined by our very special guest, uh, longtime acquaintance, Herman Bowles, and uh, we're so excited to have him here today. So, Herman, how you doing, man? Okay, Joel. You know, the spring is coming out. We had a little snow up here in Washington over the weekend, and uh, however, most of it's melted away now, so I don't know if this thing called global warming is uh, real or not, but we're certainly having some weird weather. Yeah, well, I, I think that's part of the weirdness of global warming is that you would have funky stuff like that. So it's kind of crazy. I got to tell you, though, Herman, before we get started, I have one regret. I have one regret as it relates to me and you. And I got to tell you about it. I was invited to your home many years ago for a very nice function. And for whatever reason, I couldn't make it. And uh, I regret it to this day because everybody came back telling me how great it was and threw it up in my face. So uh, <laughs> that's what I want to regret. <laughs> so hopefully uh, next time, if I get the chance, it won't happen again. So we'll see. Yeah. You're always welcome. All right. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, it's very exciting for you to be here. You know, again, I've, I've been able to watch your career over the years, and it's just continued to grow and grow and grow, and it's been extremely impressive. You've accomplished a lot. You know, I, I just wanted to ask, the um, one thing I, I did appreciate or mention, I should say, is uh, the time that you've even um, spent with me over the years. You know, I think back to uh, being in your office up there in D.C., and uh, even my, my thinking on some matters did a little bit of adjustment. So, uh, you know, you've helped me out with that and um, given me insight over the years, so I certainly want to thank you for that and, uh, you know, continue to go from there. You know, you, you've done a lot and you've certainly grown. By now, you're the, the vice chairman at JLL, which is uh, quite an achievement. How did this all get started? I mean, because you sit on multiple boards right now as well. Matter of fact, how many boards do you sit on? I know I'm throwing multiple questions at you, but... <laughs> well, I, I, I think I'm on three, four public company boards and then USAA doesn't count. So that's obviously probably it's a fortune 100 company as well. So uh, then I'm, you know, I think it's also important that uh, we do things in our community. So I'm also sitting on the board at the uh, American Red Cross. I'm one of the governors there. And I'm also on the board of the association of graduates at West Point. So my alma mater, matter of fact, I'm vice chair of that board. So, you know, I've got quite a bit of activity going, but it's, it's, it's sort of, Joel, I, I'll tell you, just share with your listeners, you got to be in the game to be a player, right? So the more that you're out there, the more you're going to be in the game. That's number one. Number two, I've got a saying that if you, if you lie with the dogs, you get fleas. If you're soaring, you're with the eagles. So you want to soar. So the people that you're associating yourself with, look at the five people you spend the most of your time with, and you're going to be, you know, sort of like those people. And that's particularly important to young kids. Uh, I used to tell my kids that when they were growing up all the time. So if you surround yourself with excellence, you're going to raise your bar, your level, your game. And that's important. And that's what the boards uh, allow me the opportunity to do. And probably one, Joel, that I'm probably most proud of is I was recently selected to be on the Defense Policy Board. And this is a board that uh, advises the Secretary of Defense on uh, issues related to our national defense and national strategy. Madeleine Albright is chair of that board. Henry Kissinger is on the board. Carter Ash, who was the former Secretary of Defense, is on the board. It's uh, uh, Pat Swiger, former President Howard, is on the board. So it's a, a group of about 18 of us. And we look at all of the material related to the defense of our nation. I mean, what more ominous and great responsibility can one have as a citizen than they help to defend the constitution in our country. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's uh that's pretty interesting and pretty impressive. And you know, with I was gonna ask you about this a little bit later, but since you kind of opened the door to it, you know, what this this the Russia situation that's going on right now, um obviously you're on the board of all these major corporations. Is there any thoughts that you possibly have uh, related to that or is that off limits for this discussion or? Well, well, I mean, I can discuss. <laughs> Obviously, we're, 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 we're privy to a little more information, but I can discuss what you read in a paper anyway. And okay. uh, 
Obviously, it's a uh, horrendous situation. We are certainly dealing with an international aggressor. And at the same time, it's a very uh, volatile situation, uh, as you know, because we are in a a day that we have nuclear weapons, and that's the last thing one would want. And we're dealing with a leader of the aggressor who is, maybe I'm certain we've got a lot of uh, information on him, but sometimes, as you know, even our listeners that are in real estate negotiations, what you assume when you're negotiating is that you're dealing with a rational actor. If you're not dealing with a rational actor, all of that stuff they teach you in business school kind of doesn't go. It goes out the window. uh, Where perhaps we could be now. But uh, I'm hopeful that we'll get the situation under control. And obviously our prayers and hopes go out to the people of Ukraine and their zest and zeal to pursue democracy. And we'll hope that that will prevail in the end. However, it's up in the air right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it seems like some of the companies are divesting from doing work in Russia. Seem to have finally got his attention. Um, you think that's the case, and it should continue, or? Well, yeah. Well, certainly, uh, JLL. We uh, we we have cut back, pulled back our operations in in Russia. As you know, we're in you know eighty five countries around the world, and right. certainly we have clients over there, and we'll certainly do it in a responsible manner. Uh, however, this condemnation needs to be broad. It needs to be wide. It needs to be deep. I, I guess the latest thing I read, and again, I'm only repeating information that I see in the press, but you know, there was still popular support within Russia to uh, support the aggression. And of course, however, that is as a result of the information that they get and how they get the information. So we're all influenced by how we're communicated to and what is communicated to us. So I think that the whole process of uh, all the sanctions at some point, you know, obviously going for the oligarchs and all the people that support the uh, proxy, it's not a proxy government, I guess it's legitimate in their eye. However, as it starts to impact people on the street, you know, people perhaps will have a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. so I guess it kind of waits to be seen how that all plays out, you know. So it's quite interesting. It's very fluid, as you know. So you know better than we all do. So I, I don't even have to tell you that. But let's, let's just go back a little bit because a lot of our guests, you know, one of the main parts of this podcast is to just kind of give people insight has, as to how you get from point A to point B. You know, you, we could obviously look at you now and say, man, you've done a great job. You've, you've created and, and had all these opportunities and whatnot. But how did you actually get there? And you mentioned about Storm with Eagles. You gave us some very good advice there at the beginning. But you started off, if I remember correctly, in the military, right? Yeah, well, I think it starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a doubt that the military, but I think everything starts with all of us at a at a much earlier age, like at our birth and the uh, uh, environment that we were raised in. And Joel, you know, I I certainly I, I tell people all the time I may have a silver spoon to some extent now, but I certainly wasn't born with a silver spoon in my in my mouth. I'm the youngest of seven. I'm from Florence, Alabama. So, you know, right up the street from me there in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the youngest of seven. And unfortunately, my father was killed in a farm accident before I was born. Oh, wow. So you can imagine this. My mom uh, pregnant with me. My dad was killed in October of 1955. And I was born in February 1956. You know, my oldest sister was uh, 14 at the time. So you've got this really compressed uh, period. A lady at the time, she had not even finished high school. And now she's six kids and pregnant. And I got to tell you, the outcome of that was she went back, got her GED. And by the way, she was cleaning houses and a cook and sold insurance for Atlanta Life Insurance Company. So uh, there, I remember going around with her. You go around, you'd connect collect a, a nickel, a dime, a quarter a week, and you just drive around these people's houses and do it. So she was an entrepreneur wow. extraordinaire early on, but she went back at her GED, also went back, went to uh, community college, go to nursing school, became a licensed practical nurse. And with that, we moved off our farm, but we, the family still owns the farm to this day. Okay. But we moved into uh, Florence, Alabama, which probably some of your listeners know. And then from there, I was just very fortunate, a little skinny kid that moved in during the second six weeks at the junior high school. And I happened to make the basketball team. And, you know, as you know, the athletics, I think it's so important. That's why I'm such a supporter of Title 10 and making sure that uh, females get an opportunity to compete in sports. That is so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. And from there, you know, was a pretty good student, went to the high school and uh, 
uh, it was, uh, if you can imagine this, in 1969-70, uh, having a black quarterback was not wasn't a jour. So uh, I was a starter on the freshman team and eventually oh. became the first starting, uh, full-time starting quarterback in this high school that was 16% black uh, wow. at that time. And, you know, I was also, uh, you know, played four other sports, had the record in the high jump. I don't know how high I could jump now, but six, three, three quarters sounds pretty high. Uh, at the time and uh, played baseball, played basketball. I was also president of the student council. So had a a very rounded career. And with that, and most of your listeners have had this, you know, you're young and you're doing these things and people are telling you how successful you're going to be. I'm going to tell you, that's a lonely day because the expectations are such, and you're just kind of trying to be a teenager learning life, et cetera, et cetera. Fortunately for me, the academies, you know, were looking for people like me with the profile that I had in terms of the physical and the leadership, as well as the uh, academics. And uh, I was recruited by all three of the academies to go and West Point uh, recruited me for football as well. And my second choice, if I hadn't gone to West Point, I think I was going to go to Vanderbilt, which I don't think would have been a bad choice. Mm-hmm. However, I think West Point was the best because I went there. I played football for two years. And fortunately, everyone at West Point's on the scholarship. And that was really great. And one of the greatest things there, and I'm looking at a picture <laughs> up on my uh, office wall here now, is after I played football for two years, I'd had a radio show in high school at West Point used that, hey, we've got a radio station, you can do it. They did a great job recruiting me. So I did, after stopping to play football, I became the voice of Army Sports. Okay. So I did play-by-play for football as well as basketball. And the picture I'm looking at is a picture up there with me and Coach K. So that's where I met Coach K, and he and I are are, are, are friends to this day. As a matter of fact, I'm on the uh, board of the Center of Leadership and Ethics at the Fuqua School at Duke, which Coach K uh, leads at. So he's uh, a, a great friend, supporter, and I'm looking forward to – hopefully I was a little disappointed in that game the other night against Virginia Tech, but we'll see how they do in the tournament. So – did that West Point, then went into the Army, and that's where you started the question. And met my wife in the Army. Uh, we had a phenomenal career there. Served here in Fort Dix, then went overseas to Korea. Then we were both fortunate enough to go to graduate school. I went to Harvard Business School. She went to Tufts. Then we went to West Point. If you can see the rug behind me, that is yeah, the uh, that is the seal of West Point. So this is somewhat of a family heirloom because we've got so much related to West Point. After graduate school, I went back to West Point as a professor. I taught finance and economics. My wife went back to work in the admissions office. And during that time, two of our sons were born there as well. And I didn't tell you, my wife and I were also married there. So we've got that connection to West Point. Two of our sons graduated from there as well. So we've got a a big, big, big tie with West Point. And unfortunately, Jewel, some of your listeners, so my wife passed away last year. And she's also interned at, at West Point. So we've got, you know, West Point for life, so to speak, in the Bulls family. So after West Point uh, teaching, I went to the Pentagon, worked there for a while. And while I was in graduate school, I was also in student council, uh, student government. I was president of my section. And we had something that I didn't really understand uh, that much at the time because we had about 35 black students in my Harvard business school class. Mm-hmm. And all of the kids that kind of knew what was going on in the world, they really rebelled when the school said, we're going to only have one professor for real estate. And I didn't, I, you know, I'm like, okay, what's real? You know, I just come from Korea in the army, you know, what's real estate. And, and when you're elected representative, you basically work on behalf of your constituents. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the administration. We got another section and, you know, I'm from the turnip farm, but, you know, I didn't follow up the turnip truck. I said, why are all these people so interested in real estate? Well, part of it back in the 80s, uh, some of your listeners are too young to know this, but the, the real estate investment tax provisions were so favorable that people, no matter what they were doing, you always invested in real estate on the side. Well, I mean, I didn't learn that at the breakfast table, but a lot of these, uh, my classmates from the majority, they understood this. And I said, hmm, maybe I ought to take this real estate course. And I took the course and saw that it was uh, the way Harvard teaches it is phenomenal with case studies. And, you know, you do some retail, industrial office. And I said, this is really neat. And you you still had to run numbers, right? So I was a finance concentrator. Mm -hmm. So putting this 
combination of doing the finance and also dealing with people and creating things, that was just something that really, really, really got to me in terms of a positive and saying, boy, that would be a great way to make a living. And after teaching at West Point, again, I went to the Pentagon and then the Army at the time was really cutting back. And I had 11 years, 11 and a half years on active duty, but I decided to resign and I stayed in the reserves. Ultimately, after a few years, I still retired as a colonel. However, the first job I McKinsey and the, the consulting firms and this little firm called at the time LaSalle Partners. And a friend of mine that I had uh, had as a guest instructor at West Point knew the CEO. And that's why I say again, right? You hang yeah. with the Eagles, you soar. Good and point. he introduced me to uh, Stuart Scott, who was uh, ultimately, Stuart passed away a couple of years ago, but he was ultimately the CEO of uh, LaSalle Partners at the time. Met him and boom, went into real estate. Wow. Wow. So what was your first role in real estate? My first role, I'm going to tell you, I've, I've been the luckiest guy, but I tell all, all of us, we make our own luck. I was in the military and uh, LaSalle Partners at the time did at-risk development. I knew enough to know, you know, property management is great. You need to do it. And I'll never forget going through some of the uh, interviews. People were like, oh my gosh, you'd be a great property manager, not so, no, I think I want to do development. So I was very, very fortunate that my first job, and I'm going to tell you, we've got, you know, black developers now, particularly there in Atlanta, but I'm going to tell you, when I started this in 1988, there were not a lot of black people doing institutional development. Sure. So I started, uh, my first project was uh, a project in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, the foundation was in called Manufacturers Handover Plaza. I think it's called Chemical Bank Plaza now, right across from Rodney Square. So I oversaw the completion of that. So I had a UPS was our investment partner Then you had to deal with the development, et cetera, et cetera. And then I did my second project was 414 Water Street in Baltimore, Maryland, oh. uh, where it was a uh, development lease and purchase agreement with the city of Baltimore. So, mm -hmm. so those were the development and everybody knows that goes in cycles and about 91 I mean, we were in a recession, you know, those were yeah. back in the days and all you needed was a little money you could uh, borrow and put a prop property out there. And mm -hmm. uh, let's just say the lending got out ahead of the uh, development process. Then developers like myself, we became asset managers. Mm -hmm. And I worked for what is now LaSalle Investment Management, LIM. At the time, it was LaSalle Advisors. And we worked with pension funds. And, you know, investing real estate and, and, you know, Joel, to talk about those connectivities and how important they are. One of my clients uh, at that time was New York State Teachers Retirement System. And I also had the state of Alaska, Cal PERS, Cal SERS, had a whole bunch of them. But I was actually the account manager for New York State Teachers. And uh, later, when I left day to day work for a while at JLL, you know, they said, hey, Herman, we've been waiting for this. Will you be on our board? And that was over 20 years ago. Wow. And I'm still on the real estate advisory board for New York State teachers. And I think some of some of your people know that I'm there. Every deal they do over $50 million comes before this board. And I've been a uh, outspoken proponent of uh, diversity, particularly in the investment and the people who bring the investments. Uh, matter of fact, on Friday, I was the keynote speaker at their uh, minority conference, you know, minority uh, provider conference. Is that the, the one yeah. they have in Albany every year? Yeah, one they have in Albany every year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I was the keynote for that on Friday. So, so I, I I digress, but anyway, that was just the way I got into real estate, and then I've always been entrepreneurial, and um, I saw an opportunity with public real estate, and many of your listeners may know I started uh, what's now you know about a seven hundred fifty million dollar business for JLL which is uh, public institutions mm -hmm. doing real estate for, I shouldn't say doing, managing real estate and real estate transactions for federal, state, local governments and colleges and universities. So right there in your backyard, the uh, Technology Square over at Georgia Tech, okay. I oversaw, I oversaw, I, I, I shouldn't say conceived, I helped them conceive and then oversaw implementation of development of that project. Okay. Um, I've done work with Spelman, Morehouse, uh, Clark Atlanta, you know, in our firm, you know, we're doing work with, uh, you know, state of Georgia system and everywhere. But I actually started that part of our company, which has grown phenomenally well. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know you were doing all that in, in our backyard here. So uh, when you're down in Atlanta, I got to take you out to dinner next time you're down this way. So, got it. Yeah. 
So that, that's quite interesting. You know, you did touch on one thing, though, I, I definitely want to go back to, and I know this is on the mind of a lot of listeners. After the George Floyd situation, there's been a lot of commitment by corporations in order to help minorities in development and in real estate, especially, uh, as well as a lot of other small business concerns and whatnot. What are your, your thoughts on actually seeing that? Uh, you're obviously in a position where you could have you know, some input on that, but are, are, is that money actually flowing to black businesses from what you see? Well, let me, let me, let, let me, let me handle that from a couple of ways. And, okay. and, uh, one of the first thing I want to do, I want to put a, a shout out for an organization called the executive leadership council, which okay. I've been fortunate to be a member of for the last, uh, 20 plus years. And those of you who don't know it, look it up, uh, elc.org or elc.com. Let's say, I think I get it right, but executive leadership council, just Google it. And this is a group, uh, when I joined, it was about a hundred and so African-American executives, now it's over 800 African-American executives that are within two levels of the CEO of their companies. So in other words, these are very, very, very senior people that are out in corporate America, Black people, unabashedly Black people. And as I look back, and I've been doing corporate boards for the last 20 years, I've been on public company boards the last 20 years. And I can tell you in the last two years since George Floyd, there have been more of my colleagues from ELC that have been placed on boards than in the last 10 years combined, okay? So that is a tactic, tactical data point that shows that, you know, there is some conscience, there is some movement. And I can tell you, and again, uh, you know, the boards I'm on now, for example, uh, host hotels, mm-hmm. we're the uh, largest owner of, uh, you know, high-end hotels uh, in, in the world, American Campus Communities, which is a student housing mm-hmm. company, and we're the largest student housing development company, uh, a REIT, uh, Comfort Systems USA, which is a HVAC mechanical contractor. And again, that was the first public board I went on several years ago. I'm actually, Joel, I became chair of the board of a company called Fluence Energy uh, in the fall. And it is a, it was a joint venture between AES, which is a you know, Fortune 100 utility, and Siemens company, the big German conglomerate. And uh, they spun that off and uh, asked me to be chair of that company. And we're, again, I, I tell people that's the plastics of the 60 energy storage. And it's a, a phenomenal opportunity and, you know, to be a leader on the cutting edge of technology like that. And I, I told them, I said, you know, you guys, want, I don't know anything about energy. They said, well, that's not why we want you uh, to be chair. And the point I want to make there is for all of your listeners, what we want to concentrate on, we want to concentrate on our leadership skills, because in the end, that's what it's about. How do we promote others? How do we arrange? How do we think it's strategic and uh, pull together to accomplish for the common good of, of all that are involved? So, so, the point I'm making is that there are a lot of pronouncements. And when the George Floyd situation came about, even from the American Red Cross CEO to the CEO USA, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, I'm, I'm consulting with, with all of these entities and saying, what do you do? And one of the things that I said is, first of all, do not be patronizing. You know, be careful of going out saying, this is what we're going to do. And then a year from now or two years from now, you got to think ahead. You look back and say, how does what I said I was going to do track with what I did? Mm-hmm. And if there is a significant gap there, you're going to lose even more credibility. Sure. So the idea was to be quick, to be measured. And I can tell you, organizations are definitely looking at opportunities differently. I already told you in terms of what we're doing at New York State Teachers Retirement System. And I think the word got out through all the consultants that, hey, there's this bulls guy on your board up there. And <laughs> when you come in, He's going to just ask you, and it's, you know, like a defense deposition. You know the question you're going to get asked. You're going to get asked, you know, tell me tell me how you're doing it. Because, look, in the end, as we think about diversity, and over the years, people have had this uh, moralistic review. It's sure it's moralistic and societal. We should do the right thing. However, Joel, I've said for, for, for ages, even during slavery, people went to work, but yet they... I'm sorry, went to church, but yet they came back and did whatever they did on Monday. They did it in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So if it were a moral issue, something perhaps would have changed and it did not. Okay. So I say that it comes down to being an economic issue. And if it's an economic issue, what has to be demonstrated and realized is that diversity is important. 
for economic reasons. And let's think about something. Many of your listeners probably know that the most recent 2020 census indicated of people under 18 in America, the majority are people of color. Hmm. Now think about that for a second. Wow. As you extrapolate that out to 2030, 2035, 2040, Hmm. the majority of people in America are going to be people of color. And that great philosopher Wayne Gretzky says what? You got to skate to where the puck is going to be. So think about that. And this this is no secret. This is the proposition, supposition that I make in Fortune 500 boardrooms. Okay, so we've got that and we see where that puck is going. So if we're going to be successful in what we're going to do, what products do we make? I.e., what's the market going to be? Who's going to sell those products, i.e. relate to the customer? And who's going to buy those products, i.e. pay us money? And if we don't have a diverse perspective to understand all of the implications of our products and services and how we deliver those and do it through a uh, very, very wide lens, we're not going to be as successful. Some of your listeners out there don't even know what Polaroid is, right? Polaroid was once king of the photography, okay? So things change over time. And if organizations are not facile, agile, and, you know, responsive to change, you know, you're not going to be rugged and around for a long term. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very powerful. And you mentioned a diverse perspective, which is so important because so many boards have looked the same for so many years. It was like the argument about the Supreme Court, you know, that it had looked just the same for so many years. So very, very interesting perspective there. I did want to ask you, though, I, I know with uh, New York State, it seemed like there was a lot of initiative to get that money out, but then where it was getting hung up is with the institutions that were kind of in the middle that were vetting the actual developers. And that's where the money wasn't actually, you know, getting it through that funnel. Uh, is that still pretty much the case or? Well, I mean, look, look, I, I, I tell everybody what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it possible for you to get to the water, to okay. the river. I can't make you drink. Right. right. So what do I mean by that? <clears throat> The product has to be good. The sponsorship has to be good. Mm-hmm. And, and we know the problem we have generally, particularly with minority women and, you know, uh, veteran owned companies, you know, it's hard to have the track record, right? Because the same, yeah, you got to have a track record. To do yeah, yeah. And you're right. The consultants are out there. And, and at the same time, now understand there's a fiduciary responsibility to the pensioners, right? Mm-hmm. That you're, you're doing it. So as I said, diversity is not a social program. It's, it's not a social program for a allotment or a quota to say, we gotta do this, okay? Mm-hmm. I am not a quota person, okay? I am very much into numbers, however. And if you, if you tell me that you haven't even spoken to anybody from these diverse groups, okay, and we're not doing well. That's a problem. Okay, that's a problem. Yeah. Okay, so I believe in the will and the creativity of people. And there are Black people out there that will make great investments. There are white people out there that will make great investments. There are Black people that will not make great investments. And there are white people that will not make great investments, yeah. okay? But what I want to see is I want to see each of those groups have an opportunity to present what they are capable of doing. And if you follow my comments from earlier, somehow there is a market edge in there from having a diverse perspective and having that ability to look at it a different way. So the consultants, I don't want to say they've got a tough job but they've got to serve that role of making sure. And, and I tell you, NYSERS, we certainly have to depend on our uh, consultants. Again, we've got this fiduciary responsibility, but I don't think NYSERS is using that as a shield. Okay, I can tell you they're not using it as a shield now. They are aggressively looking out to find different investment advisors to give that diverse perspective because what is it that we want in the long term? We want return for our teachers. That's what we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that all that all makes sense. And, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you could say no matter what, it's not a hookup. Right. You still have to be able to perform. 
You still have to be able to deliver. Look, I, I tell you. So, <laughs> so, so let, let, let me tell you, you know, I've been at JLL for now going on 32 years mm-hmm. and have been fortunate to have a very good career there. And all of the, any employee I will talk to, that's number one, because, you know, I'm a senior leader, period. I'm a leader. So I'm not a black leader. Okay. I'm a leader that is black. Right. And and I do talk to black employees, I'll tell you. And when they come to me and sometimes they'll come, you know, I got this problem. I said, okay, I'll tell you two things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number one, I'm here and I'm going to be your biggest supporter. Number two, you got to perform. You got to perform. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to support thoroughbreds. And if you're doing well and you're doing everything you need to do, and there is something systemically that's holding you back, I'm going to be your biggest supporter. However, if you're not doing well, and that not doing well is a result of some self-identified, imposed shortage on your part, I'm going to be the biggest foot in your behind. Because what we have to do is we have to understand that what we do every day, we're setting the stage for those that are following us. Okay? So when we pursue black excellence, we make it better for everyone to include my kids, your kids, our grandkids. That's what we've got to do. Mm-hmm. When we're going along and we're going along for the ride. And the first thing we want to say, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen is okay. They don't like, well, what happened? Well, you know, the dog ate my homework, you know, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You got to get a new dog. You might have to get a new job or you get a new job dog. But if you're out there doing it, let's, okay. Because let's talk about something real important for success in an organization. And, and many of your listeners out there, you know, we all are in the network. If this were a live event and we were there, I would surmise that several people would come up after and say, hey, Herman, I want to get your card. Here's my card. I want to network with you. Nothing wrong with that and should happen. And there's nothing wrong with it. However, Networking is very transactional. Most people go toward networking with the idea, I'm going to get to know this person because they can do something for me. And that's not bad. I want to make sure that's not bad. However, what I did back in, and I didn't realize this, Joel, until probably about 15 years ago, I came up with this framework. I didn't realize what I did back in Florence, Alabama in 1973, when I was elected student council president, but 16% black in school. It was a result of the fact that I'm a connector. And a connector does something for someone without regard as to what they're going to receive in return. And when you can become a connector, you form what's called a relationship. I mean, a real relationship. And relationships like like marriages, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs, but most important, you have the ability to communicate. And when you can connect one after another, it's like those sand out on the beach. You know, you got to have thousands of them. And all of a sudden people say, hey, Jules a real deal. He means what he says. He says what he's being and he's dependable. And Joel's not just calling me when he wants something. Joel is there, and I feel that he's there for me. For what I do at JLL now as a vice chairman, I mean, I'm a rainmaker. That's what I do do for a living now. Certainly, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time toiling over spreadsheets and doing those things. Mm-hmm. However, that rainmaking, over 60, 70% of the deals that I do, guess what, Joel? Somebody's picking up the phone calling me, mm-hmm. saying, Herman, I got this issue. Can you look at it? And that's a result from planting all of those acorns yeah. from connecting with people over so many years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your listeners just understand that difference between networking and connecting, and you want to be aware and do both of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a very, very powerful point. Um, you know, and, and one thing that I've come to realize, and I'm, I mean, it's right in harmony with what you were just saying. Even look at me and you over the years. I mean, we haven't done anything personally together business-wise, but just having that communication over so many years can, can lead to opening up something, you know, from that standpoint, uh, because we've known each other for so long. And so sometimes it's not just, as you mentioned, transactional. You know, I meet you at a show, here's a card, and then that's it. Or what can you do for me? But just building that relationship over years could be of value. So 
you know, that's a very powerful point. And I hope uh, everyone on the line, you know, listens to that. And uh, Quinn says, true gems. <laughs> so I appreciate you sharing that. So very, very good point. I'm going to be opening up the line in a minute to Q&A from our, our listeners here. I did want to ask you also, though, Herman, um, are, are you actually seeing this money flowing, though? It's, it's good that a lot of the minorities have, you know, got on these boards and have done other things, and I'm sure they're going to do their part. But I heard even the other day there was a company that was saying, I can't find any black developers. And so they're looking to uh, reallocate funds that they had initially set aside. So have, have you seen a, a track record of deals actually getting done or money flowing? Yeah, well, you know, certainly in the, um, in the let me talk generally from, from the boardroom perspective, and I'll okay. tell you what, what I'm, I'm seeing happen there. Okay. People have, I, I should say people, organizations have already had their, you know, minority supplier programs. However, the question I'm asking, and I think others are asking, by the way, to be a good board member, for those of you out there that are interested in that, mm-hmm. it's not about your knowing the answer. And that's the biggest transition from being in management where you're executing and making things happen to being on the board where you're responsible for governance. You're basically putting the rails on the track and you know you want to make sure the organization go, doesn't go outside of those rails. And it's like nose in, hands off. That's the uh, being a great uh, board member. However, to be a great board member, you don't have to be able to answer the great question. However, you have to be able to ask the great question. Okay. And that's the ability to see around corners. It's your wisdom anticipating where the puck is going to go mm-hmm. and asking questions. And it's uh, it's sort of like, Joel, like our, I, I certainly know my spouse was able to do is to convince somebody to do something without you having to directly tell them to do it. So it's an art, it's a skill. So you don't say, hey, you should be in this market. The way you ask that question is, well, as you look at the markets we're in now, what other markets have you considered and why or why not have you entered them? Mm -hmm. And because all of us, right, when you come to the conclusion and you own it, you're going to execute it better. But if I'm telling you what to do all the time, it causes two problems. Number one, you get conditioned. You're waiting for me to tell you what to do. And then number two, you don't really own it because it was my idea. And I want it to be your idea. And that's what uh, what leadership is about. But the point I'm making here is that as we get more people of color and more women on boards and in these governance positions, being able to ask those questions in the boardroom of management will eventually result in more activity. So, you know, organizations uh, such as Real Estate Executive Council, African-American Real Estate Professionals, which I'm proud to say I was a co-founder of that, you know, 20-something years ago here in Washington, almost 30 years ago. My gosh, I'm getting old. Those organizations are important because the collective voice and the exchange of information is so critical to any success of any movement having that combined voice. And, and look, your listeners know, and I know when I was doing development and when I was doing asset management here in DC, man, you got to be out there and you got to get information. Real estate really trades on information. information yeah. Okay, It's all about information. Mm-hmm. And if you're not out there getting it and having the ability to do the connecting we talked about earlier and knowing what's happening, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you're not going to be as effective as you could be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, powerful point. You know, it was interesting. I was thinking about um, what we were saying a few minutes ago about how you still got to perform. You know, you'll open the door, but you still got to perform. And uh, it was actually, I was at a New York State pension fund meeting up there in Albany where that issue came up. And it was actually stated that the minority firms are actually outperforming their white counterparts. And it seemed to be primarily because they knew that they may not get a second chance. You know, so they would do everything in their power to make sure that those numbers were stronger than than anyone else. And that was kind of the catalyst to say, hey, well, give us more opportunity because of that. But you got to perform. And that's really the point. I mean, you haven't got to where you were just by lollygagging around. I mean, just look at all you did in in high school. I mean, all of that shows that that basically built the foundation of the type of person you became later in life that you were willing to put the work in in order to achieve. That's an excellent example, you know, to follow from that standpoint. So appreciate you sharing that with us. You know? 
Good points there. <clears throat> so, guys, I'm going to go ahead and uh, open up the line. Now, if you have any questions for Herman, you can either raise your virtual hand or you can put it in the chat, and we'll be happy to, to get to those and, um, you know, get some more pearls of wisdom here, as uh, Queen Green just mentioned a minute ago. All right, we have uh, Latoya Gamey. Go ahead, feel free to unmute yourself and uh, ask your question, please. Good morning, um, Latoya Gainey here. I just wanted to, to make a few comments, Mr. Herman Bulls. What a very enlightening and fruitful conversation. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Certainly, certainly appreciate it. I've been following you for a while and you have such an amazing background. This is very, very inspirational. I'm sure not only for me, but from um, all of us as listeners on the call today. And I just wanted to point out, um, <laughs> I was chuckling because we have a couple of things in common. We were both born in February and I was also, I also grew up on a farm in Southern Virginia. <laughs> but, um, and at some point, um, I'm a broker now with DT Spade. I spent some time with CBRE as well, but I would love to pick your brain at some point about um, real estate for public institutions because that is sort of my niche right now because I, I spent 15 years in the federal government in DC. And so for the commercial real estate side of it, that's exactly what I want to focus on. So just putting that out there and I wanted to, you know, thank you for your time and all of the great nuggets that you shared this morning. So thank you so much. Well, look, I, I tell you, as I started the public institutions group at JLL, one of the things you note, and you know this from your service at GSA, the public sector probably has a higher percentage of representatives of diversity making these decisions. And again, we've all got to perform. However, the water cooler connections and you know the country club connections and the things that we in the past may not have been privy to to establish these relationships and connections, you know, we can do it on the common bond. So I would say that just be aware that you have the ability in terms of influencing buyers and influencing the perception of what products need to be out there. You've got a little bit of advantage there, and I would encourage you to, to go after it and follow your passion. Thank right. you. Yeah, thank you, Latoya. We appreciate that. Brittany Hill. And that's your question. Hi, good morning. Brittany Hill here. Uh, thank you for joining us today and giving such a profound discussion, Mr. Bulls. I have two questions, if that's okay. I'll give you a little bit of background. I'm coming from traditional commercial real estate. I um, started in 2014 uh, in the D.C. proper uh, with REIT management and research, which grew into the RMR group. And most recently, as of four years ago. Wow. Uh, four years ago, I've transitioned into the data center infrastructure cloud management side of real estate for a company by the name of Digital Realty in the um, tech corridor of Virginia. So we are a global company. I think we're now in six continents, 26 countries. So as uh, one of their real estate managers in the Virginia area, I'm having a bit of a, um, an issue trying to turn on the company to diverse suppliers. We've been getting a lot of inquiries from some of our top customers like Google and Salesforce, uh, Microsoft and things of that nature to see what we're doing around DEI. So in July of last year, I started our diversity, equity and inclusion council and one of our pillars is business. So can you give any insight on, because you speak highly of, um, you know, being our own biggest supporters. How do you, in such a large organization, um, help to put on, you know, our black small vendors or our minority vendors, rather? I won't just say or strictly keep it to blacks, but um, in terms of getting more of a supplier diversity, do you have, you know, any insight on how best to go about that, and um, also? how best to gauge the metrics in terms of growth year over year once the company does take something like that on? Yeah, let me let me say, uh, I oversee at the executive level, JLL's relationship with uh, Microsoft. So I'll give you an example okay. where I'm on the other side of the table. And uh, Microsoft's uh, leader of uh, corporate real estate securities, individual by the name of Michael Ford, uh, mm -hmm. just phenomenal individual. He and I both have a military background. He's he's also from Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama. And he and I are both on a, a crusade, being in the positions that we're in, 
to make sure that people that look like you and me, when I say that, I'm saying minorities as well as women-owned organizations have an opportunity to participate in this thing we call commercial real estate. And it sometimes takes, it takes courage, okay? And those of you who perform at the highest level, you have license to speak out. And the issue, we had, a, we had an organizational meeting with JLL, probably, I guess it was last month. We had the top 400 people in one of our divisions together. And I was able to be very outspoken as I looked across the room. I said, hey, this is better than it was three years ago when we were last together. However, it's not good enough. And when you have the ability to say that and have the courage to say that and have the position to say that, it makes a difference. I'd say out of those 400 people, over 150 of them came up to me during the two days we were together and saying, oh my gosh, Sherman, you're so right. You just made blah, blah, blah. Now talk is, uh, talk is good. Action mm-hmm. is better. Okay. Having that opportunity, and I don't know if you're involved in uh, whether it's a real estate executive council or African American real estate professionals, making sure that your procurement people on the one hand, because that's the tactical part of it, but more importantly, your business line leaders are aware that these organizations exist and you're able to make those connections with people who represent these organizations. And let me tell you one other thing, real, real quickly. Sure. As we talk about, particularly in, in the real estate area, I'm, a, I'm an, involved in something called the Black Corporate Directors Conference. It's something that's put on every year, Aerial Capital Management, John Rogers and um, Melanie Hobson. Many of you probably know those two guys. They do a great job. And we bring together African-American directors from Fortune 500 companies. And we have a, you know, we'll have a phenomenal weekend out in Laguna Beach in California. So beautiful location. And we have beautiful conversations. And one of the things that we talk about are the three P's of those people, those of us who are sitting in those boardrooms. It's that first thing you should be concerned about, and you can talk about this as you talk to people, or the people, okay? So how does the board look? How does the C-suite look? How does middle management look? And how does lower management look in entry level? So the people, ask the questions around people. The second thing is philanthropy. Let's not forget that corporations give away a lot of money. And when you're looking at that social portion of something called ESG, environmental, Mm -hmm. social, and governance, it's very important that we ask the questions of, okay, we're giving to XYZ Corporation. Okay, what are we doing for those corporations, uh, those charitable organizations that support diversity efforts? So you ask that question. And the last one is about procurement, which comes to where you are. Okay, mm-hmm. And procurement comes in a couple of ways. The first question we ask is, let's look at the type of spending that we're doing. And John Rogers is great at the C talks about, okay, we've got the janitors, we've got the security, we've got the pest control, et cetera, et cetera. Low value add, okay? Very important functions. Please don't get me wrong. Any of you that are in those industries, they're critical industries. However, in terms of wealth creation, very, very, very low value add. What about your lawyers? What about your accountants? What about your real estate advisors, Okay. What about all of those, your insurance brokers? Those are higher value add. So first of all, let's look at where we're spending those minority dollars. Then the next thing we ask is, we recognize if you want to go to the moon, you're going to talk to Elon Musk, because I don't know too many minority firms that are putting satellites in orbit. Now the question you ask, if you are doing it and you've got to be with an IBM or you've got to be with Google or whatever, Then you ask the question, who is coming to sell to me? Who is in your organization that's going to deliver those services? Because me as the buyer, I can ask those questions. I don't tell you, I tell my clients, Michael Ford at at Microsoft, we're working on a huge project down in Atlanta right now. You know, my team, my local team, I first had, hey, I need this done. They put a team together and I went back to them. This doesn't do it. No, I want the United Nations. And guess what? They went and found the right people because, right, you're, you're in the office. Hey, I got this great project. We're going to go with, uh, with Microsoft. And, you know, your tendency is to go to the people, what, that you play golf with, that you go to church with, that you live nearby. 
And let me tell you, there's some uh, minority and women at JLL and the Atlanta office that are working on one of the most premier real estate projects going on right now. And I don't want to necessarily take total credit for it, but working with my client, anticipating the question, I said, that is not the team we're putting on this project. And they went and found the people. So this is where it comes down to where it's an economic issue, not a social issue. And that's how you can frame this within your organization. And certainly the social appeal is important, but in the end, you've got to make that connection. Let me tell you how we can be more sustainable and make more money as an organization. I hope that was helpful. Very much so. Um, thank you for that feedback, sir. And I'll, I just have one more thing because um, you did mention, you just talked about ESG reporting, which I do work closely uh, with that department that provides that reporting because we now have to offer our DEI metrics now year over year since we've now have the um, leadership council in place. So one of the things that I'm trying to focus uh, solely on is we have an internal pillar external pillar hey, uh, and Brittany, a business pillar. Brittany, yes. Got a bunch of other people that want to ask. Oh, sorry. Questions. Just so, one, one last thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, briefly, and then, please. And then we'll move on. Yeah, no worries. Um, so my question in terms of our metrics that we reported this year, we have like 78% male versus 26% female. And that gap is across the board when it comes to the EVPs, SVPs, and VPs, as well as non-management workers and employees that we have across the globe. So is there anything that you may know, if not, perhaps you can give me a point of contact and I can reference them in terms of recruitment. How are you all or JLL maintaining the metrics that you have if your metrics are high in female versus male employees or how have you all kind of put that in place to try to drive those numbers up to well, ensure- Let me, let me, let me, let me real quickly, Joel, Joel's giving us the hook here. Let me very quickly uh, <laughs> answer that one for you. Look. If you want to get catfish, you don't go to the Pacific Ocean to drop your line, okay? So you got to go to where the people are. So your organization, again, I'm going to go back to AARP. I'm going to go back to Real Estate Executive Council. Each of those have the ability to put you in contact with individuals who have the ability to represent and do a great job in your organization. That's number one. Number two, as you start looking in the feeder pools, okay, you can't just go over to Morehouse one year and recruit. You've got to invest in a sustainable relationship with the colleges and universities. You can't just go to Harvard. You just can't go to Stanford. Go to where these young, outstanding Black people are. And if you establish the relationship, your best recruiters are not going to be you and me. We're there for little dressing. They're the kids that come out, come into digital realty, do a great job, tell their buddy, then they come and you get the snowball effect. So you've got to work on it at all levels. You've got the executive level, looking at your board, making sure you've got the representation there. And you can, you know, you're not going to make that decision, but you can say, hey, it's important that we look like America at every point in this funnel of our personnel. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Brittany, thank you for being part of the discussion. Real quick, Herman, because I want to respect your time as well. Uh, Nicole Eaton had a quick question here. Uh, where would you recommend one start in CRE development in today's marketing climate? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, development is tough. And if you're, you're interested in development, you're probably, you know, should be looking for those entrepreneurial developers that are doing things because look, People are smart and they know that they need to have representation on their teams. You know, not a lot of the corporations are, are doing the development themselves, if you know what I'm saying. They're, they're hiring the JLLs and the CBREs of the world to oversee that development. So one way is to go through the service provider aspect of it, and you'd be more managing the process. However, another way to do it is to find that, you know, that, that local developer and it is, it's just, you know, you talk about board positions are, are, are tough to find. There are what, 5,000, 6,000 of those with a population of 350 million people. So the odds don't sound good mathematically. Developers, uh, you know, the, the local ones are family tied. There are not a lot of uh, openings coming up. But you go back to what I said earlier, right? Who are you hanging with? Okay. Are you going to the industry events that are put on by crew or NAOP or whatever they are? 
it is so important, and I'm going to use the word Rolodex here, so important that you expand your network and connections so that you have ability to hear about it. Joel and I spoke earlier, it's about information. So you got to hear about this opening. You got to hear about whatever's happening. And what we're doing with Microsoft in Atlanta, I can tell you, we've got the architectural firms, everybody that we're working with is going to have to have a diverse representation. Okay. And I'm, I'm partnering on that deal with my good friend, Egbert Perry over at Integral. And, uh, you know, he and I are seeing eye to eye and he's looking at his team. I'm looking at my team and we're making it happen. All right. Sounds good. So hopefully, Nicole, that's, that's answered your question. How are you doing on time, Herman? We got a couple more. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm probably good for about five or 10 more minutes. Okay. All right. Let, so me, let, me, let me make sure. Yeah. Let me run through these right quick, right quick. Quinn Green had another question here, somewhat in the same line. What do you think is the greatest challenge we are facing now with getting more women and people of color in areas of CRE beyond property management? And where do you feel the best opportunities for those groups are, or for those uh, groups? Yeah, you may have noticed when I first telling you about me going into development at JLL, you know, as I was interviewing with some of the lower level people, they were like, oh my gosh, you, you'd, be, you'd be great in property management. You know, man, you got that leadership <laughs> experience, you got operations and all that. And I just said, okay, you know, fortunately I'd had someone talk to me and say where the long-term opportunities were and that development is definitely there. So first of all, it starts with your, your, your qualifications. And one thing you have to be, no matter what your profession is, you have to be a continuous learner, okay? I was up this morning, probably about 5.50, and I uh, read for an hour and a half. You know, I got all of this stuff I've got to know because it's about connecting the dots. Then I went down and got on the Peloton and got in a good 30-minute workout. So a healthy body complements a strong mind. So it's important to keep that balance there. And, and it, so, so that continuous learning is so important. So if you want to be a developer, I mean, how many, uh, how many classes have you taken on what it takes to be the developer? What are you doing to read the Wall Street Journal every day so that you're aware that Microsoft is building a new regional, regional uh, operations in Atlanta? You know, just all these little things you've got to be aware of so that when you go to that cocktail party that hopefully will start up this year where, you know, we can start interacting with each, each other and you're talking to somebody, you, you're just bringing all these little nuggets in. And it's not like you want to be just sputtering out facts. I mean, they've got to come out at the right time, but your desire and your ability to be a lifelong learner, I cannot tell you how important that is. When I taught at West Point, I told the students, I said, look, I'm your teacher. But what I'm really going to do is I'm going to teach you how to learn. And that means you've got to learn how to teach yourself. Because think about your formal education versus what you do now. Okay. I've had one real estate course in my life. I took it at Harvard. I set for the real estate salesperson's license. And I guess I took a course for that. Other than that, every and I've, I've been an expert witness in court. I've testified before congressional committees as an expert in real estate. How did I get that? I got it not by osmosis sleeping on a book. I got it by going out and continuing to learn every day. So if you're a continuous learner, you're going to be able, and you float with the eagles, the two of those things together will put you in a much better position to achieve your professional goals. All right. That's a very, very good answer. and. Uh... Right on point and, and simple too. You know, if you look at it from that standpoint, there's no magic. It's just putting the work in and doing those things. Let's see if we can squeeze these last two in. Alethea uh, Williams, you had your hand up. Uh, something yes, sir. To share with us. Sure. Thank, thank you, Joel. I am grateful for Mr. Bulls. Thank you for your service to America and thank you for your pearls of wisdom. I would just like to know if you can recommend some books for us. And I'd also like to know who your greatest influence was or is. Uh, not a problem. Well, you know, uh, in, in books, I'm looking up here on my uh, bookshelf now. I probably don't read as much as I should, but uh, I'm looking up here with a couple of them that I 
really enjoyed, and uh, they were back in the 90s, In Search of Excellence is uh, a book I recommend. And then another one by Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point. So these are just things that get you going. Now, one that uh, is actually set in Atlanta, I'm setting up here, and I read this book about probably 20 years ago. It's called A Man in Full by Tom Wolfe. And it's about a mysterious uh, character who's a Georgia Tech alumnus and quarterback of the football team and all the development going on in, in Atlanta. That, that might be a good one for you guys. Just It's a pretty, pretty long. And just so happened, the person that that book is uh, based on, I did the deal when I put the deal together for Technology Square there in Atlanta. That was the person I, I dealt with to put the, uh, put the deal together. So that brings up the point whether you talk about it, but make sure you don't go into a meeting with someone without knowing as much about their background as possible. It just amazes me how many people go into a meeting and you didn't realize that the guy went to the University of Alabama and Alabama played a game last week and you say, hey, roll tie. And just that little gesture to show that you knew something about them will do so much to establish that relationship we talked about. And as far as people, and, and I can think back, um, you know, I'm a, a kid of the 60s, and there was something about John F. Kennedy that got to me. There was something about Robert Kennedy. There was something about Martin Luther King. And uh, as I think of those three in terms of characters that we're all familiar with, you know, ask not what you can do for your country, ask what you can do for your country. Okay. And that I'm paraphrasing it, but you know, my ability to go to West Point and be prepared, you know, and I was, I'm prepared to give it all up for the country and the freedom that we all express today. That's important. Then I think back to, to a couple of people from a professional perspective, there are probably three of them. One is a guy named Buddy Moore, who was my high school football coach. And there was an article done on me by, uh, on my relationship with Coach K at Duke. And the author uh, reporter went back and talked to my high school coach and asked him, said, hey, what was it like for you deciding to start a black quarterback back in the 70s in Alabama? And I hadn't really thought about it. And he said, yeah, I caught a little crap about it. But, you know, Herman was the guy. So that, that would be my high school coach who did the right thing, right? Athletics is the leveler and people want to win. And then uh, Stuart Scott, who was the former CEO of JLL, for recruiting me and giving me this opportunity. When I went to work for JLL, there were 12 manager directors at the time. This was back in 1988. I interviewed with 10 of them. Mm. Okay. Nobody else in the history of the firm had interviewed with 10. Now, I've got a saying when you get lemons, you make lemonade. And the reason all 10, because I was doing development and their money was personally into developments and they wanted to make sure that this guy was okay. And that makes all the sense in the world. And then what happened as I went out and had some success, I had what? Relationships with 10 of the 12 managing directors because I'd interviewed with them. So that's taking lemons and turning the lemonade. Now, I, I, I'm speculating as to what their motivations might have been for all wanting to talk to me, but nobody else had gone through that but I made that work in my favor. And then as I think of it, there's an individual by the name of Joe Anderson, who was uh, graduated from West Point in 1965, 64. And Joe, matter of fact, was the second black on the board at West Point, White House fellow. He was my sponsor to get me into the executive leadership council. And just matter of fact, he and I spoke this past weekend and just having a, a role model like that. He was big executive at GM. He's an entrepreneur now. He's probably had about 10 or 15 companies over the last few years that he puts them together, mostly in the automotive industrial space. And having those people to look up to and to be your kitchen cabinet. So each of you should have a board, in essence. Have your own personal board of directors. And not that they're going to meet one by one and talk to you, but make sure you got a millennial on there so you can understand uh, you know, what TikTok is. Make sure you got somebody that is uh, there from an industrial or technology perspective to make sure you stay up to date and have people that will really tell you what you are doing and how you are doing it. Because be aware of this, you know, those quadrants, you know, and you don't know, there is that quadrant that you don't know that you don't know. And you've got to understand that that quadrant exists every day. And that's that ability to be a lifelong learner. So you can try to make that quadrant as uh, less of a challenge as possible. All right, well, fantastic. That was that was great, Alethea. Hopefully, that answered your question. 
And uh, okay, very, very fine. Well, Herman, I'm, I'm actually going to end on this one, and I'm, I'm going to squeeze this one in just because I think it's important to you as well. It asks about um, disability inclusion and employment. Uh, so not just minorities and women, but also disabled vets. Any brief comments on that before we, uh, we wrap up? Yeah, look, uh, veterans are, 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 are critical to the freedom that we have, and we owe it to them. A uh, couple things I'm involved in. I'm, I'm uh, of all the boards. I'm also an advisor to two private equity funds. One is called Hivers and Strivers, and the other one is called Moonshots. And particularly for Hivers and Strivers, this is a our investment thesis is that leadership matters, and people who are veterans have leadership. So we only invest in veteran-led companies. Hmm. Okay. And one of them you guys are going to hear about, uh, particularly those of you who are in the multifamily uh, organization called Lease Lock. I kind of did the review on that one about four or five years ago, and it's going to be a unicorn. There is no doubt about it. What it does, it, it, uh, your organization makes it necessary for people not to put security deposits down. And as a result of that, they just pay a little more every month, right? So it, it increases the cash flow. And at the same time, it provides the landlord insurance against not being paid and or damage to the department. And uh, it's it's a phenomenal concept. And I, again, a bunch of uh, military guys put that one together. So seeing that one hand, their leadership in terms of the veterans leadership is so important, but it's also important that we recognize those who have been, have done, and are willing to give their lives for our freedom. Okay. All right. Well, that's an excellent point to, to end on. Herman, this has been fantastic, you know, and, and for you to call out the time to be with us today, uh, I can't thank you enough for it. You know, as I mentioned, uh, this has been great. Uh, you've given pearls of wisdom over my years. I don't know how many years I've known you now, at least 20, 15 to 20, somewhere in that range. And uh, this has just been uh, really exciting. It's been a great podcast. And um, I can't thank you enough for calling out some time. And I, I get all the comments here on my screen in the chat. Uh, everybody loves you, man. Uh, well, look, I, I, look, I would I would just end with this. Many of your listeners are going to know Maya Angelou, and it's something that I try to live by and make sure that people understand, and that is this. People will forget what you say. People will forget what you do, but people will never, ever forget how you make them feel. That's right. That's right. And that's something to keep in mind. So I think you made us all feel well this morning. And so we, we certainly appreciate it. And I appreciate you being on the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. This has been an excellent show. Our special guest, Herman Bowles, with us today. And Herman, again, thanks as always. And uh, you better look me up when you come back to Atlanta, man, so I can buy you dinner and we can hang out a little bit more. So, <laughs> so it'll be a Okay. And I wish, uh, I wish everybody the best as you continue to pursue your goals and make a difference in this world. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for being here today. We look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Thanks again, Herman. See you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.